He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, January 20, 2024, Denver Riggleman, my special guest, the former United States congressman, served in the military. He has lots of experiences in Colorado, which is apropos of a guy named Denver. That's a family name. It goes way back. He's a man of the old South. He was a Republican for the longest time, but something in his character said, no, I won't capitulate to MAGA. That's against his values. Where did he get his values? Well, spoiler alert, he met a great female named Christine. They've had a long, beautiful marriage, three daughters, and a distillery out there in Virginia, the part of America he used to represent. He represented America really well on the January 6th Select Committee. He was their data diver. He's a tech guru. Find out all about it. He's a fascinating man. Could not be more honored to know a gentleman of that quality. I did meet Tim Scott once at the Denver Conservative Summit. Actually, we kept running into each other, and I finally said hello Senator Scott, so good to see you. How do you like Colorado? And he said, I love it because I have family in Colorado Springs. And I just thought he's a great guy, the kind of Republican that uh, I admired. This was about 10 years ago, back when I used to go to the Western Conservative Summit. And now to see him sell out and back MAGA. But what choice is there? MAGA's going to win. A friend of mine, Joe Walsh, was on CNN. He's been a guest on my show. He, too, a refugee from Salem, a man of character like Denver Riggleman, who was a congressman who did not sacrifice his principles or capitulate. Anyway, Joe makes clear that the Republicans, if they're smart, and there's a few smart ones, realize they can't win without Trump. If they nominated Nikki Haley, then a huge percentage of their necessary voters won't vote, and Trump won't cooperate. He's not going to play by their rules. So they're captive to Trump, but not Denver Riggleman. He stood up, unlike Tim Scott, unlike Marco Rubio. What a little Marco he is. And they formed this cult-like entity called the Church of Trump. That's the way that Denver Riggleman writes about it in his book, The Breach. I recommend it highly. It's a cult-like atmosphere, and Denver Riggleman raised in the Mormon church. It's so amusing how he broke away. We tell part of this story, but get the book to find out more. But he did have family that loved him, a lot of Southern Baptists and Methodists and Republicans in backwoods Virginia, where to be a Democrat is a pity. 
He understands reverence for the Confederate flag and all of that. Things I don't get as a Colorado guy, but I learned from Denver Riggleman, you will too, and you will be entertained. Every week our show, Troubadour Dave Gunders, entertains with his music and his conversation. This time, I said, in honor of Denver Riggleman and his wife, Christine, could you please give us something with that feel? Of course, he had the perfect song, Nothing the Wind Can't Blow. You will hear it toward the end and our good conversation, but you will enjoy Denver Riggleman and his Colorado experiences. Holy cow, did you know he was once doing some naughty air acrobatics in a U.S. Air Force plane? Where? Over Metro Denver, Colorado. It's a funny story as long as nobody got hurt and nobody did. Denver Riggleman next after my good friend Michael Bailey. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, buddy. Hey, Denver. Boy, do I feel like I know you. Because I just <laughs> fin- I just finished your book, fantastic man. The breach, thank you so much. The untold story of the investigation into January sixth. It was terrific, and thanks for doing my podcast. Oh, I'm 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 honored. Thank you for having me. You are an American hero. I believed that oh before God. I read your book, but now I believe it even more. And you struggle with a lot of the same things I do which is how best to respond. And and you say, let's talk about it. Talk about it with uh, smart people like you, your military background. I got to tell you, I'm a Denver native, and I don't believe I've, I've ever conversed with a guy named 
Denver before. I think I'm a first for a lot of people, Craig, when it comes to when it comes to Denver. So, um, yeah, I just I love Denver myself. I did a lot of work there when I worked for the agency. And so I was there all the time. And my wife and I, every time we would go through Denver, we would take a picture of me underneath the Denver sign, <laughs> which was sort of ludicrous. But it's sort of funny, too. So I read, I read, yeah, I read so your far. whole book waiting for an explanation of how you got that name. It didn't come. Oh. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I'm the third, Craig. So um, Denver um, in Old English means lush green meadow. Um, it was also a name. I remember I was looking at it. It was a name used by, uh, gosh, I can't remember what the, the background was, but it was a common name for one of the European countries. So really, my family had never been west of the Mississippi. They were all Appalachia. West Virginia and Virginia. So Denver is just a family name that got passed down, and I just happened to be the third. Well, tell us a little more about your Colorado experiences before we dive back into Appalachia. I found that fascinating. What a great part of your book. But yeah. tell, us about, <laughs> tell us about your Colorado encounters, because I am a Colorado guy. A lot of my listeners come to me for Colorado information, and it's interesting to hear what a guy from Backwoods, Virginia, thinks about our centennial state. Oh, I love it. And I have so many stories. One is uh, my wife and I went to Breckenridge Distillery there in Colorado, which isn't exactly Denver. Um, but a lot of the th times when we would go through Denver, it was back and forth when we lived in Idaho or when I was actually in the National Security Agency with the United States Air Force. So I did a lot of things with NSA. So there's a lot of great bases, as people know, in Colorado, like Peterson. I was an Air Force officer. So even I was at Colorado Springs a lot. But a thing about Denver specifically, which I think is the coolest story, was I was actually in an F-16, Craig. It was a F-16D two-seater, a trainer. And I was with one of my colonels. I was a lieutenant at the time, and we were flying into Denver. Um, it's a Buckley Air National Guard base at the time. And I remember that I had, he was, you know, he was allowing me to have the stick. And I had been trained as an intelligence officer on B-1s, F-15s, and F-16s. So we're going over Denver in an F-16, probably, at, I don't know. 14, 16,000 feet. He goes, Denver, you want the stick? I said, yeah. So here's Denver flying over Denver. And then he goes, hey, do you want to do barrel rolls? So he taught me how to do barrel rolls. So there I am, Craig, at an F-16 fighter jet, Air Force intelligence officer named Denver doing barrel rolls over Denver, Colorado, which is one of my most incredible stories, I think. Yeah, I remember that day. Scared the shit out of us. Yeah, we saw you doing it. <laughs> Dude, that was... Uh, that was what two thousand. It was, I think, that was the year two thousand uh, that I actually was doing barrel rolls over Denver. I was thirty years old uh, doing barrel rolls over Denver in F sixteen. I'm sure you saw. You're probably like that guy's going to crash. It's probably what you said when you were uh, down there on the ground. Yeah, I think it it caused me to three putt a hole I was playing at the time. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we we didn't hit the sound barrier quite. But yeah, if you saw really bad barrel rolls, that was me. That was absolutely me in 2000. Well, I know all about you. You were a wannabe flyboy, but you missed it by six months. I mean, I did. Yeah, uh -huh. it's, uh, yeah, I was too old. Yeah, I, you know, I had to enlist in the United States Air Force. Um, you know, my parents weren't really interested in paying for my college, so I enlisted in the Air Force when I was actually 22. I'd been married three years by then, and so I enlisted because you know, I would, all I did was lift weights and eat at Golden Corral for three years when I was first married. My wife, you know gave me an ultimatum once uh, somehow she got pregnant. And um, 
but yeah, I um, listened to 22, um, and and at that point, I found out I was you know above IQ, uh, above moron and IQ. Got number one as an honor graduate out of the enlisted uh, basic training out of Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, they sent me to Keesler, Mississippi, where I learned electronics on on jets. Was enlisted, and then by the age of 25, the Air Force asked if I wanted to submit for uh, no kidding an ROTC scholarship. I was going to school full time at that time um, and actually did well. I was studying and, you know, found out I wasn't completely stupid and actually got into the University of Virginia, uh, graduated there uh, with a pretty good GPA and became an intelligence officer. But since I waited so long and I was on the long college plan, Craig, um, I graduated when I in uh, May of uh, 98 and I had just turned 28 and I needed to be, I think, 27 and a half, I think, in order to fly at the time. So I just missed the cutoff. But oh, wow. What a life you led. I want people to buy your book. And frankly, I, I mean, the book about your high school experience, your romance with Christine, how you <laughs> ultimately confessed to the top clergy guy, which cost you your Mormon missionary trip. I mean, it is yeah. hilarious. I don't know if you want to give it away, but uh, I'm in love yeah. with uh, We're all in love with your wife. What do you call her now? Hooch Mama at your distillery. Yeah. But they, you, you, you've got a love story for the ages. We do. I mean, we met when we were 16, got married at 19. You know, as you know, you, you mentioned, you know, I got kicked out of the missionary training center because I wasn't exactly the perfect teenager when it came to chastity, I guess is the best way I can put it. And I remember when Christine read the book, she screamed. She was in the back room and I'm like, what happened? And she goes, I didn't know you put this part in there. I said, I sent you the draft, honey. So we had a 24 hour tense period, Craig, when she actually read that chapter um, because she had not realized that I put that in there. And that caused a little bit of tension the first 24 hours, but it was pretty funny too. You know, it's the it's the screaming, oh, my God, and me laughing and also being absolutely terrified that she was going to take a baseball bat to my cranium. So it was uh, one of those nights, you know. Well, let's not give it away. Other than to talk about the fact that your family was LDS. You know, we know about that in Colorado. Sure. You know who the Manassas Mauler is? Because you're from Manassas, Virginia. Did you know there's a <laughs> Manassas, Colorado? And uh, I did not know that. Uh, yeah, The Manassas Mauler is Jack Dempsey. And if you go to Manassas, Colorado, it's down there near Arizona and Utah, where a lot of Mormons live. And I believe Jack Dempsey was part Mormon, part Jewish, part a lot of things. But that area, you know, we're used to Mormons being in Utah or thereabouts. But you were a Mormon in Virginia, and I think that's, yeah, an, Virginia. that's an important part, really, of your understanding of what comes next for all of us with uh, cults and, and, and indoctrination. And, and, and don't you think it gives you a, a special perspective? Yeah, I, you know, I always ride the lightning on this because I had such good friends in the LDS church and, and actually some incredible memories. But the thing that got me is that the church took up every spare moment of your life. And it also, it was a, it was a discriminator. And that, what I mean is, you know, that we were the only true religion Everybody else was wrong. And, you know, I was raised that way. And I think, and, and, you know, I was called a warrior for God. We talked about spiritual warfare, you know, to gird your loins and, and things of that nature. And, you know, I was a pretty well-read Mormon elder, you know. And even after I got back from my mission, I tried to give it a go. Well, the, the aborted mission, because <laughs> I didn't get there because of my, uh, I guess, my confessions and things of that nature. But 
I think that, you know, looking back on it and where I am now, I can see where that belief system can completely take over your life, where even if there's something in front of you that's facts-based, your faith is supposed to overcome that. And that's something that I never could get my arms around. It was always a conflict for me. And I think, you know, looking back, I think I learned so much of being in a very strict religious environment. But on the other hand, I think I wasted so much of my life until I got into the military where I actually started to travel, deploy. And sports also opened my eyes in high school, obviously. You know, it wasn't just, you know, white guys playing football. And this was, you know, I went to Stonewall Jackson High School, Craig. I mean, I was a Stonewall Jackson Raider in Manassas, Virginia, where the first and second battle of Bull Run happened during the Civil War. So my upbringing was really interesting, you know, very religious, um, very down the line, uh, but also living, you know, where a Confederate flag on a car wasn't a big deal. And, and it really does, I think, give me some unique insight based on my background in data analytics, counterterrorism, being in Congress, running companies that actually went after bad folks or building new technologies. My aperture was open to this to this data and fact based way of looking at things. And I think that's, you know, it gets me in trouble sometimes, Craig, as you know. Uh, but as long as I try to stick to facts-based insights and data and try to look at the crazy that's out there, it, it seems that sometimes when I come out with a data-specific thing, people will try to poo-poo it. But by the end, they're like, oh, crap, he was right, because I just try to stay consistent and be in data-based. And that's it. I mean, that's that's really what I try to be for people is somebody that they know that's going to tell them the truth with the facts and data that has been validated. And I do the best I can to be that person. for people. Right. And you got your Mormonism from your stepfather and your mother who got it from uh, somebody knocked on the door and missionaries. And, and <laughs> yeah. before that, most of your family were Southern Baptist. You, you described that well, but yeah, Southern Baptist and Methodist. I didn't go too much into the Methodist side because there were so many religions in my life. And that's the other thing, too. My first, actually, uh, when I was at University of Virginia, Craig, my first pick of a degree was theology. Now, I went into Eastern European um, foreign affairs. Like, I, I actually uh, concentrated on the former Yugoslavia. But I was so interested in religion, I, I read voraciously about religion and the differences. I read a lot of books from Joseph Campbell about myth. And I think it really, again, it was those experiences in the military, my education, and the fact that I, I learned to read very young, age four. You know, I read, I won some national contests, Craig, in first grade. I read 316 books. So I, re I read very early. And I think that's the, really the only thing that saved me was really education and also, you know, starting to learn critical thinking in a way that I think a lot of people maybe haven't yet. I mean, that's really just the truth of it, is that I'm okay with common sense, you know, and critical thinking See, sometimes. I think sometimes it, I'm not. I think, it was, I think it was Christine who saved you. But what do I know? All I did was read your book. She's the Christine hero. Did save me. Christine is the hero of the book. I don't think people you're so you're so right. I know people might have not read the breach yet. She is the hero of the book because without her, I don't think I'd even be here today. But I love the conflict you describe within your family, the loving approach, the the turmoil it's caused you. Fortunately, in my family, it's not like that. But with former friends, I feel a lot of that angst, especially with my former radio colleagues, fellow lawyers. You identified so well that there are four aspects of January 6th and what we're up against. It's got a legal component, a media component, a military component, and what's that other one? Um, 
Was it a political component? Yeah, political, right. <laughs> I'm doing a Rick Perry. Yes. Anyway, but uh, yes. it, it, it comes back down to, uh, to you and your amazing skills. And, and I think guys like you are heroic. And uh, your work on the January 6th committee is fantastic. And you brought a perspective to those guys that really they lack. And it was sort of your Appalachian roots, but let's move your story along. We know you got into the military and you became a data specialist of all things, data analyst. Tell everybody how you got good at that, because reading your book and following you on your podcast, Mighty Peculiar, you have an ego when it comes to a few things, and one of those things involves your analytical skills putting data <laughs> together right you think yeah. you're you you fancy yourself badass at it and you know fellow badass people and tell everybody how you acquired those skills it had to do with you not being able to be a pilot so you turn your uh, focus elsewhere right yeah, I did. You know, when I was enlisted, it, it's a pretty. I, I want to try to keep this pretty short because it, it's a it's a rather long story, and I'm going to keep it very concise. When I was enlisted, I was taught avionics and radars. So once I became an intelligence officer, uh, my first deployment was only months after tech school. I was on the Romanian-Serbian border for Operation Allied Force, and we had to track bad actors going into Serbia, rhymed with Prussian. You know, so um, so we were tracking using a, a mobile radar system and. I remember walking into the actual um, into the actual radar facility, which was actually a van, it was a mobile radar, and you know there are people you know doing beeps and squeaks and turning knobs and doing all the great things that you do, and I just started saying, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, what are the ambiguities on this? I was asking some questions based on my background in radars and things like that. So it, it's I sort of got this reputation of somebody who could understand data. Now it was actually based on training, uh, military training. And so that actually led me to go to Oman to train the Omanis in F-16 operations and then Mountain Home Air Force Base, Craig, hand-selected me to learn all the electronics, radar warning receivers, defensive avionics suites, and weapon deployments for the F-15C, the F-15E, the F-16CJ, which, which shot, you know, harm targeting missiles or went after other surface-to-air missile systems, and also the B-1 bomber. They taught me everything about them, how to target how to recognize threats, how to actually deploy weapons. I actually got stick time, as you know, I told you on F-16s and on B-1s. I was actually sent to an F-15 school to actually fight real pilots on simulators to learn about weapons. And then I actually got to take apart missile systems. So I got to look at how data actually affected a bomb, how data was used to target people and how that data could be utilized to put a bomb on target, which was incredible. And by 9-11, I was one of the first to deploy in 9-11 for the first bombing runs into Afghanistan. So that was really my incubation. By 2002, um, by hook and by crook, I got to NSA, and they immediately put me in an office called National Tactical Integration. And I got picked up, still wearing the uniform, I was a captain then. Um, I got picked up by a group called Big Safari, which was Air Force Special Projects. And I got to brief the NSA director, General Hayden at the time, on using combining NSA data with tactical data with satellite data, and I got to combine that into the first ever targeting solution for a program I can't talk too much about. That was insane. And here I am with coders around me, and I'm learning how data can actually do, give you a quicker time to target. 
that was really the incubation of my life. And then I sort of got known for that, not really being the coder, but the ability to find data. I was like this ultimate data digger with all the experiences that I had. I could pick up the phone and find somebody who had data that's needed to fill a gap to go get bad guys or to identify a country's number one threat or to look at communication patterns. And it just became what people went to me for. So it was really momentum from the training I got in the military and the fact that I just sort of gravitated to it because I did think I was always searching to say, can I be a facts-based person? Am I, can I get away from you know being a faith-based person? And I know that's awful to some people. I still would hope you know, that I'm knocking on some kind of pearly gate, but I'm not counting on it. So for me, it's can I use data and facts to affect change in this world that I think is right and good? And can I make sure that I am the guy who's always telling the truth? And it's just something I've, I've tried to be. I hope that helps. With no, 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 that, that's amazing. And thank you for your service. And I was entertained by your deployment in Romania. Wasn't that where you were keeping an eye on uh, Prussia or, or a country that rhymes with Prussia? <laughs> I, I'll say Russia. But I'll tell you what you have to be careful in discussing on a Colorado Connected podcast. Serbia. Because we have an MVP here from Sambor, Serbia, named Nikola Jokic. So be careful saying anything bad about Serbia, even though I know they have mixed regard for NATO, right? Oh, they certainly do. I mean, I that was my degree, was the former Yugoslavia. And, and my professor at UVA was married to a Serb. And I remember my first pa paper, we were talking about um, safe havens. Um, it's, it, I tell you, people would have to know a lot of history to know what I'm talking about with Srebrenica. And, but I remember that I, I did a job I thought was amazing. I remember I got the paper back from Craig and it said C minus. It was my first paper at UVA. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Or it might've been a D minus, who knows? But he goes, you're, you write spectacularly, but you're polemical and your research is shoddy. I'm like, wait a second. So I went to him. And he schooled me on deep dive analysis and research in a way that I didn't even think was possible. So not only was it the military, Professor Schaup and Professor Lynch at the University of Virginia, those two professors absolutely opened my eyes. They widened my global aperture on the differences and how data and how things can be not perceived if you don't look deep enough into the facts. And I got to tell you, Craig, it's, it, it's so I've been humbled so many times in my life. The only way I think to be a badass is to fail over and over, and I certainly was, I certainly did that enough, you know, in my first few years in university, and also when I was an intelligence officer. I learned through hard knocks and, and really bad experiences. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson for young people out there. If you want to get an area of expertise, do what Denver did. Uh, have the government train you, right? I mean, send you around the world, teach you the most sophisticated things. To a degree, I did that with my first 16 years as a lawyer at the Denver DA's office, right? Just working for the government and learning skills uh, through actually doing things, right? So you have two daughters. That's good life advice. If they don't think, Papa. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have three, right? Okay. Three daughters. Okay. Yep, three daughters. And one's a master distiller. One got her master's in film directing from the University of Edinburgh and has her own digital media company. The other one just got her master's in game design and virtual reality. And she actually just got an inter a paid internship with Rockstar Games. My kids are really literally badasses. And, 
you know, and I think that's um, a lot of it had to do, I think, with how awesome they are. But I always told them, you have to be better than me. You know, I, I and, and I mean, that's what a parent wants. Right. Is you sort of got to, you know, you push and, you, you know, sometimes I was a little too rough or hard, I think, as far as a military parent. Um, I'm a big teddy bear, but, you know, that's how I got the nickname Silverback for our distilleries, Craig, you know. Um, so that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, if for me, um, I would say government training going into the military and I hate to be crude. It's really when my balls dropped was <laughs> was when I went into the military and figured out that I had to put up or shut up, that I had to actually meet the challenge um, or I was not going to make the cut. And I think that's a lesson that stayed with me for a long time. No, I think that's true. And you were always a tough guy. I mean, you were a bouncer and a power lifter. Have you kept that up? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm back in the gym now. You know, I'm 53 now, Craig, so I'm not quite as robust. But, um, yeah, I don't. I, my last day bouncing was 27. My wife made me stop after a pretty violent altercation that I had in a parking lot. And uh, she said, honey, you're 27, about to be a commissioned Air Force officer. Maybe – Maybe having a gun pulled on you isn't the best way to go about life. Another story we could have at another time, Craig. And and so I don't do that. And as far as lifting weights, I still do. Um, actually going to hit the gym after this. But, you know, as I'm getting older, it's more health conscious than powerlifting. But, yeah, I, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I've, I've had my times where I did a little bit of butt kicking and had my butt kicked, you know. So, again, I've been humbled so many times. I, I've, I've been through incredible things. And. Um, I think that's what makes me who I am is that I have tried things where I failed. I have, I have wrote checks that my ass couldn't cash. <laughs> and so it, uh, it's a learning curve, right? As you get older. So, you know, I'm pretty more aware of my limitations now for sure. Right. Well, we all go through mistakes. I put out a Twitter mistake promoting the fact that you were going to be on the show. And I called you a lifelong Republican because I was just toward the end of your book and may I say, you narrated it fantastically. What a great reader of your own work. Not everybody can do it, but you were spectacular. And it was just right at the end that you revealed that on June 5, 2022, you stopped being a Republican. But before then, tell everybody how ingrained it was in you and your family that you were Republicans. Yeah, there, there were no Democrats. I mean... You know, Democrats were, you know, a bane to the existence of the United States. They were, you know, they were evil. You know, there wasn't one person in my family who wasn't a Reagan voter. You know, if you think about, I could vote in 88, so I didn't get to do that. But there wasn't one family, one member of my family wasn't a Bush voter. You were just Republican. That's what you were. It wasn't a, there was no actual way to get around that. And I think, so I was raised that way. And I think that's why I tried to outline the book is that there was really no, I didn't think one way or the other, you know, somebody said they were Democrat. I'm like, ah, you know, you're, you're trash. Come on. You don't want to be a Democrat. It wasn't like I was violent about it, but I was like just dismissive and wouldn't even have that conversation with people. And I think again, as you get older, um, and even what happened to me, right. I was an accidental Congressman, as you know, right. I didn't get into politics. So I was 47. Um, I barely voted for the love of God, Craig. Um, didn't care. You know, I was doing work for America behind the door anonymously and with pride. I didn't need anybody patting me on the back. Um, I was very happy with who I was and, and the friends and, and the military people that were with me and, and who I grew up with. And boy, what a great life. There is some treasure in anonymity, I'll tell you. But 
I wasn't making the effect I had once we started our distilleries and other things were happening. And I said, maybe I can do this. And I thought I was good at everything. And what I found out is I'm really not. Um, politics, even though I won, I just didn't have the certain genetic or DNA makeup uh, to pander at that level. And I tried to, you know, I tried to to be that good politician, listen to my consultants and everything for the first eight to nine months. But once I officiated the gay wedding, as you know, Craig, it, it all came crashing down. At that point, I found out what it was like to be on the other end of that barrel. You know, when I'm called the tool of the Antichrist and the general of the sodomite armies, and I'm funded by George Soros and I'm laundering money and I'm trying to change the sexual orientation of children. And that was just from officiating a same sex wedding between two of my friends. And, you know, at that point I got angry and I'll tell you, part of me losing was being completely confrontational. I sort of thought that it was completely my fault. I lost because I could have just lied and won. And, um, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I just couldn't do it. And I actually felt free. Uh, and I knew that I had a chance to lose, but I also knew that I had to be Denver Riggleman. And that's the one thing that's really gotten to me lately is that maybe I'm just not good at politics. Maybe that's oh, the well, thing. Let's, maybe- uh, let's not give up on you so easily because you got elected. <laughs> you got in a fight over the distillery. What year did you get elected to Congress? 2018, and I swore in uh, in 2019. Right, but what if it would have been 2008? Or in 1998, you know, more normal times, I think you would have done a good job. It was MAGA that chased you away, right? You got in the belly of that beast and you said, what the hell? So that's why I admire you so much. But you weren't just in Congress, you were in the Freedom Caucus. And you write about it beautifully. You got to know these guys, interact with them at the White House, other places, saw Donald Trump up close. I mean, how would you describe it? Um, it's like you actually entered the real world example of the Twilight Zone. And, you know, conversations that I would have behind the door with certain Freedom Caucus members were so absolutely insane that I, I would go back to my office with my staff. I would sit with my chief of staff and say, you know, brother, I don't, how do I, how do I navigate this? He goes, man, all you gotta do is be quiet. You don't have to answer to anything. You just want to get through your first term, you know, you know, don't answer, you know, if it's something you don't agree with, always change the subject. You know, we go through media training or talk to pivot, answer the question we want to answer, not the question that's being asked of you. I mean, I've had all that training and I tried to do that the first eight to nine months where I'm like, yeah, you know, I support. Yeah, Trump is the president. I support the leader of the party. You know, you know, that kind of parsing, right? That parsing, mealy mouthed, pandering, not being completely truthful, try not to offend your base bullshit that you try to get through with media training or not responding to all the tweets, making sure you get away from CNN and MSNBC when you're leaving the Capitol steps. You only gravitate towards Fox, all the things I was told by consultants. And, And again, I had an interview with OAN or Newsmax. I remember it was one of my first interviews outside of the main the main media people. And the guy asked about conspiracy. He goes, he actually asked questions that were so bad. I said, I don't agree with you. That was, I think, my first and last interview with OAN and Newsmax. I mean, I with both of those, you know, I only had one or two. And I'm like, I can't go back on these networks. And I remember my consultant saying, well, you have to do it. And I think I just had this slow, and not descent, but a slow ascent 
into saying, I don't think I'm this. I don't, I, I, you know, I was a Republican. I'm a small business. I hate government overreach, right? I like freedoms. I was a big second amendment guy, you know, but not a crazy one, which got me in trouble. That's another story um, that I wasn't nutty second amendment guy. So I'm like, I'm a normal sort of center right guy that has to play this far right game. And I tried to do it and play it with the team and by, but I broke, I just broke, man. I, I'm like, I can't do it anymore, especially after the attacks. I got confrontational committee meetings. I told people to pack a lunch if they want to go after me. I mean, I was I was really just looking for a fight. And and um, so the Republican committees decided to take me out, and they did so. What is it in a guy like you that separates you and makes you so much better? And how can we transfer that into other people? Because you were brought up and you talk about the Confederate flag was that was okay by you growing up, especially oh, yeah. before you saw the world, got in the Air Force, this and that. But you grew up and you had a campfire scene that really uh, burns in my memory where, what was it, Gosar and Gomert started just openly talking <laughs> about white supremacy? Yeah, the, the supremacy of white civilizations. I got to tell you, it's just, and Steve King was there and, it was just um, describe where about, you were and, and uh, how the, the these border, guys thought the, these guys kind of let their hair down. I mean, they're mostly yeah, bald, they but but they let their hair down. <laughs> yeah, I was on the border. Uh, we were at some kind of barbecue near the border. It might have been Arizona, New Mexico, and it was just one of the most bizarre conversations. I remember, I was sitting on the end, sort of looking, and they were just talking about, well, there is really no such thing as, and that's you know, Steve King got in trouble for that white supremacy mm-hmm. comment, but. You're talking about there is a superiority to white civilization. We wouldn't have all we have. And and, and it got even a little bit more down the line where, you know, it, it's okay to talk about the superiority of whites when it comes to organization and civilization. I'm like, bingo, sorry. It's just weird. And I remember I my comms guy came and tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, hey, can I talk to you a minute, Congressman? I said, sure, sure, brother. So we walked to the back of the barbecue. He goes, um, I just don't want you in any pictures with him. And... I said, you're right. He goes, did you? I said, yeah. I, I said, um, you know, and I actually told him, I said, what are we supposed to do in this situation? Because for me right now, I want to go start flinging barbecue trays. Like, this is crazy. Because I remember even when we were sitting there, I said, are you guys, you being serious? And, you know, and I remember there was this look at me like I was not belonging at that table. And even to this day, when I look back, I'm wondering, should I just started, you know, should I, you know, become the silverback gorilla at that point? But, you know, there were other people there who weren't like that. And I remember like just saying, listen, we got to just stay away from these folks right now. We got to get back home and reevaluate. And we did. And I said, I will never be in meetings with these people. I'll never be around them. But I do think we certainly have a racism problem in the Republican party with certain members. That's pretty, pretty down the line. And listen, whatever they say in public that seems to ride the edges are much worse behind closed doors. And that's why, you know, just again, I learned so much in Congress, Craig. And maybe even worse when they have a little whiskey in them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys are teetotalers, by the way, so they don't even need whiskey in them to be nuts. I know. It's like Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. Jeez, what kind of bad things might have they done together? I wish they were drinkers, (laughs) right? I wish. Yeah, maybe if they drank, they'd maybe see the light a little bit. I mean, I'm not. (laughs) But, you know, I think I think what it comes down to with the Freedom Caucus and then this MAGA movement is I wasn't going to belly crawl for a scumbag. It's that simple. I hate bullies. 
and I hate scumbags. And I'm not going to belly crawl just for a career. I'd rather fight going out. You know, if there's six people want to fight me in a bar and I know I'm going down, but they're bad people and I'll just have to do it. Right. It's going to suck, but you got to do it. And it's awful. And it makes you feel bad. And you know, it's going to hurt. And you know, you're going to be, you know, kicked when you're down and you know, you're going to hear about it, regardless of how many people gang up on you, but you still sort of got to do it. You, you know, are and a, you are a badass. And let me tell you what you've done, American hero. First of all, you talked your way onto that January 6th committee. They put together a beautiful report that came into evidence under Rule 806.8, a hearsay exception admitted in Maine at that Secretary of State hearing, but more importantly, in Denver District Court at a trial I attended. And everybody found insurrection in part based on your report, the one you helped compile. And now it's going to the U.S. Supreme Court, where if they follow the law, Trump will be disqualified. So that's what you did, my friend. And you're not just spitting into the wind or fighting six guys. You're fighting more than that as a silverback gorilla. And I want you to start by telling everybody how you crowbarred your way onto that January 6th committee. <laughs> well, I mean, that was an experience. Really, it started uh, two days after January 6th. Liz Cheney had called me for an initial report that is actually out there where we were really close. I had a data team working with me. We did it in three days, 72 hours. We had delivered that for the impeachment of Trump at that time. And I guess Liz had remembered. Um, and I just got invited back on in July or August. I went up there. They really didn't have a position for anything technical. So senior technical advisor and the and the work that was done, I wrote all of that. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, me separating from the committee wasn't a great thing. That's a longer story because I thought the data should have spoke louder for some of the people I think we've that have not been held accountable. Doesn't take away from the work of the J6 committee. But really what it came down to is that they did not have a real technical plan. So I wrote it and that was for phones, text messages and all of that. I was very proud of that. Something that's never come out. Most of it was just negative when I left because, well, there was messaging issues and I had real problems with some members of the committee and, and I, that made no bones about it. However, you can have problems with them and they can still do good work. You can you can separate the personal from the professional. And I try to do that. But getting on that committee and, and able to decipher the Meadows text, able to find the Jenny Thomas text, able to actually look at all the phone numbers, help with all the identity resolution, help with all the subpoenas, help with the questions, help with actually tagging people on phones, building the monster, building the diagram, helping the investigative teams. Our team was absolutely incredible. And that's why I've started a new AI company based on some of those lessons learned. So now I have my own AI and analysis company where I'm building new tech. I have investors, I have clients, and it's growing magnificently. So by crowbarring my way onto the January 6th committee, by saying I'm the guy who can do the technical work, it allowed me to see the real gaps and the real shortages in congressional investigations and try to fix them. And now all that data, all that good stuff, as you said, has been used to try to identify those bad actors who tried to actually who, who performed coup like movements on that day and before that day. So, again, it was it was a hell of a journey, Craig, to go from an initial report to going to the Hill to going to the phalanx of people who are wondering what I was doing, trying to keep everything quiet. I mean, boy. What a time. And then for me, as probably having more knowledge and everybody combined in counterterrorism analytics, having the fights, you know, with so many people to try to get the data out. And I mean, I got to tell you, it's something I'll never forget. But, you know, politics and 
real data analysis sometimes are mutually exclusive. They they don't really work well together. Well, I always say politics and prosecution are a poor mix, but you're a detective, right? And no good detective gets disturbed by politics. There was so much information that if you could have grabbed it right away, we would have the whole story, right? We Now we, we have would to- have. I mean, there was yes, so much were. data available, but even since you wrote your book, a lot more has come out about Trump sent that 2.24 p.m. tweet, not Scavino, and uh, there's just been a lot of uh, new information, but you deserve so much credit, and you really can't bl- blame some of the Democrats who didn't know you saying, wait, a Freedom Caucus guy is going to join us, you know? I mean... Did you have any particular Democrat come to trust you more than others? No, I even if if people hate me, if if they trust me that I'm going to tell them the truth, I think that's what I want to be as a human being. Um, and there's a part in there um, where I talk about when I was warning individuals even before January 6th um, and looking at the data and identifying Trump as retweeting QAnon conspiracy memes, people thought I was the guy who was – actually overreacting. I was actually called a conspiracy theorist or said that I was a First Amendment denier by people, Republicans, when I did the QAnon resolution with Tom Malinowski. They're like, Denver, you're overreacting. And I'm like, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. You're so ignorant of data and you're so ignorant of analysis that you're actually coming at me like I'm the crazy one and you are ignorant of everything you're speaking about. And there's a chapter, uh, there's there's a quick paragraph on page 264 in The Breach um, and where I think it actually summed up why I think I need to be the trusted guy. I don't know why I, 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 I sort of accidentally got here, but I said this. I said I believe part of the reason that the extreme MAGA movement was able to flourish is that, that so many of its core ideas and key players are absolutely, objectively nuts. Conspiracy theories about deep state kill teams, dead Venezuelan dictators – and the quantum blockchain are so crazy that they're tempting that they're tempting to ignore, but we can't dismiss them. Their appeal is real. And I think when I tried to pass that message to people on the floor before there was ever a committee or January 6th, the warnings that I gave, the warnings to the committee that they weren't going far enough, all that came down to is nobody can quite believe that it was all fantasy that caused January 6th. Nothing real, all made up, all disinformation, all radicalizing language, the same kind of stuff sometimes we saw with ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And that is that kind of radicalization radicalization path where fantasy becomes weaponized, where disinformation is the messianic and apocalyptic way of doing business, where it's a war between good and evil and where people who believe these conspiracies – they believe that they're a movie, that they're a star in their own action movie. And that's why I have to keep going and, and telling people what I'm thinking, even if it gets me in trouble with people who think I'm going too far, is that you got to see the truth for what it is. The facts tell you it's right out there. If you had Oath Keepers and Proud Boys saying they were going to go after congressional representatives a week before, listen to them. They weren't being, you know, this was not aspirational. So those are the type of things that I always try to do, Craig, is that if the data is right there, look at it, at least consider it, at least consider 
that there were people storming the Capitol that day that thought Italian satellites changed the votes. There were people storming the Capitol at that day that thought the Chinese servers were redirecting votes for Joe Biden. There were people actually charging the Capitol that day that thought the NSA, through this made-up shit called Hammer and Scorecard, was changing votes for Biden. That's what happened. It was fantasy-based crap, coup-like movements, and people using a lot of money to radicalize individuals and doing fundraisings, fundraising on the backs of the ignorant. That's what happened on January 6th. That's it. That's the facts. And if people can't accept it, I can't help them. And the guy who tries to play ignorant, like, oh, what's QAnon? I hear they're against pedophilia and they like me, so I guess they're okay. But he understands what QAnon is, Donald Trump. So does Steve Bannon. And they won't talk about it on Fox or Salem Radio. They they pretend like it doesn't exist, but it's out there. And you, Denver Riggleman, you stood up and exposed it before almost anybody, before I really understood what it was. Since then, I've had authors on. How do you explain QAnon? And do you think it's a, a psyop by some enemies of America? I think it started as what can we do with it? Like anything else, it's sort of in the middle, sort of an accident, prank, hoax, joke, fundraising, bullshit, fever dream, and also something where they saw it was working and it turns into a way to actually change the minds of the American public and actually becomes an information op based on the success that they saw. So it was a target of opportunity utilized by people in the intelligence community, like the Mike Flynn's, who saw it as a way to radicalize, make money, and line their pockets. So then it becomes this combination, target of opportunity, information op, and grift. The issue that you have, though, is all based on religion. QAnon is, by the way, baseline anti-Semitic. If you look at blood libel or the protocols of the elders of Zion and how that ties into adrenochrome and Hillary Clinton in the basement of, of comic ping pong pizza. Um, but what you have is, is you have this multi-sort of planked, uh, multi-flanked um, attack vector where multiple people can take advantage of the ignorant. They can mine it based on their religious proclivities. You think if most people think that they have a direct line to the supernatural, that God talks to them or the person or the pastor at the pulpit, why wouldn't they believe that there's a global, you know, demonic force that's trying to take over America? It's so absolutely absurd, but it actually tracks with biblical prophecy. It tracks with hell, it tracks with Islam. It tracks with any of the major religions when you talk about evil being in the world, right? Or there's massive types of good against evil apocalyptic times that are coming. So it, it's not a surprise to me, but it, we do need to compassionately confront people who believe that because what you have is, you know, I'm not trying to poo-poo religion in any way completely, but being evangelical or being, you know, fundamentalist Muslim, all these type of things will lead you down a path where either one, you actually are a true believer and you will do these things wantonly, or two, you know how to take advantage of the true believers to line your own pocket and for power. And it, it, it's really that. And I think that, again, is what we're dealing with, is that QAnon was such so effective because it tapped into already the pre-held beliefs and sort of the, the fertilizer of the Tea Party back in 2008 to 2010, that birtherism and 9-11 truthers and all the BS like that it was ripe. And if you have a demagogue, somebody who has no moral compass, somebody who absolutely lacks any soul at all to be good for the American Republic, 
he can take advantage of that ignorance. And I think that's what you saw as a combination of target of opportunity, information operations, and a massive effective grift. Right. And then I watch how he gets people to come to his aid. Here in Colorado, I knew Jenna Ellis. She would fill in for me on my radio show because she would rip Donald Trump. And I liked that from a conservative Christian perspective. But then he flattered her and he got her working. And next thing I know, after uh, a little bit, she becomes chief counsel uh, for the campaign. You wrote about it, uh, the Elite Strike Force article in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. I I was quoted extensively. Jeremy Peters called me and I had to make a decision because I don't really like talking shit about a fellow lawyer, but I saw her going down a very bad road and I'd written about it in the Colorado Sun and I just felt uh, she was doing terrible things and she kept doing terrible things. And along the way, right after the election, she was tapped to come on Denver Drive Time Media, Dan Kaplan's show, and for many days in a row, she started spewing stop the steal and and giving a website, stop the steal, there's been cheating, there's been this, there's been that. No real uh, back and forth, but I learned through your book that this stop the steal mantra has a certain association with religiosity and cult-like behavior. Explain that. Now, it's when, when you're talking about Jenna Ellis, you're looking at sort of the what happens, you know, when you combine religious experience with the ability to make lots of money and be famous. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody who self-identifies as a true Christian wanting to be anywhere close to Donald Trump because you would have known already what he said, what he's done, how he's actually reacted in his life. It's it's ludicrous. Jenna Ellis can say all she wants about religion or what she was an attorney or the fact that she was not a Trump person beforehand, but Jenna Ellis was simply a vacuous tool for Trump. That's it. That's it. There's no, there's really no salvaging that there's, you know, and the fact that she sort of come back around is great. You want to have forgiveness and grace, but she saw power and she was attracted to that. And that's it. There is no, you don't have to, you know, deeply psychoanalyze Jenna Ellis. I saw the text messages. I, I, you know, so there's, there's nowhere she can really hide from people who know who she is or what she said, but the fact that she's now trying to backtrack on some of the most ludicrous things. I mean, how could you with an IQ above 80 believe any of this stuff is still crazy? You'd have to, you'd have to suspend every piece of facts-based stuff you've ever learned to think that. Now, on the other hand, you know, if you think about the people that were briefing, like the Phil Waldrons or the Seth Keschels, or you're going up to the, the ASOG, you know, all these groups that were doing the Antrim County cyber investigations, all the made-up crap. People are saying they were data specialists, and they were just using that as sort of a veneer to, to manipulate the data to make it look like things it wasn't. Maybe she just wasn't smart enough to see through that. But my goodness, you're looking at somebody who already has a track record as being completely amoral. So you should already have a ping in your gut that you need to second guess what you're actually seeing from people that have come out of nowhere and all of a sudden are self-identifying as these people have knowledge of a stolen election with this massive conspiracy over multiple states. It doesn't even it doesn't pass the sniff test, but they didn't want it to because it came with power, came with money, it came with access, power, money, access. That's all she was about at the time. Hopefully she saw the light. 
but that was all she was. She was a she was an empty tool at that time based on power, money, and access for Donald Trump. Now, Roger Stone was the guy who registered Stop This Deal, what, a, a decade prior, putting it in possible play. And Roger Stone, who I had, I had an opportunity to interview him on 1231.15. It's my episode 156. I, I replay the highlights. What a devilish guy that is. And he's the guy behind the Stop This Deal idea. Now he's professing that he's a great Christian. That's the funniest thing in the world. But he's really right up there near the head of the snake, Roger Stone. I mean, you you write about him extensively. How dangerous is this dude? He's dangerous. Uh, If you underestimate his intelligence, you're wrong. He knows how to stay out of trouble by actually being the one who causes all the trouble. Stop the steal is his brainchild. He had direct contact with Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and other groups. I mean, listen, I think Roger Stone is the most actually under-investigated individual for January 6th. Um, I think his connections are, you know, readily identifiable. We did. I always said that I thought that he was the one we should have been going after more than maybe even Trump. Uh, And some of the other characters, we should have looked deeper into Steve Bannon, which I tried. We should have looked deeper into Mike Flynn. Should have looked deeper into Alex Jones and Ali Alexander. I mean, all these people really in some ways are escaping the accountability that should have come to them as far as I'm concerned. And in my opinion, we didn't look deep enough into them. And I think the danger of Roger Stone, he's been doing this for so long. I mean, he's like a rat. He knows how to get your cheese and disappear back into the hole. And even though you know it was him, you don't know if it was him as that specific rat. He's just good at it. And uh, Roger Stone is the MAGA rat. He is the one who's going to eat your cheese and you're not even going to know it. And that's, I've been trying to warn people about that for some time. What do you make of his death threat on Swalwell and Nadler? Yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, I'm concerned about him, um, that death threat probably was real, right? Um, The thing is, is that, you know, he's going to get away with it. There's not going to be any accountability. I don't know, with the way that they're using the First Amendment uh, right now, uh, and FBI seems their trepidation to go after these type of threats to sitting congressional members or other political figures, I just find it a head scratcher that that alone didn't get him hauled in for questioning and getting his phones and his call records actually seized to see if he actually had acted on any of those or he had called people about any harm towards congressional representatives. The fact that there's no action on that, and I don't know, maybe there is, right, Craig? We don't know 100%. But if there is an action on it, I think we've really reached a point where these individuals with impunity can look like heroes to the MAGA movement through threats, through lawfare lawsuits. I'm getting sued right now in a frivolous lawsuit. Um, All this stuff is happening um, by very bad actors. And I think that's what's happening is that you have people getting away with things that, you know, 20 years ago, they had been hauled before a judge. And again, I just, it's a head scratcher. It's unbelievable. And I really believe it talks to where we are. We're in a pretty dire situation, I think, in 2024 in this country. Yeah, we are. And in Colorado, where we have Lauren 1776 Bobert, who was, to me, in on the plot, tell everybody about your efforts to hold accountable members of Congress who are in on it and the resistance you faced as you wanted to collect data. Yeah, I wanted to subpoena all their phone records. (laughs) And, you know, I wanted to subpoena Jenny and Clarence Thomas. And I think But again, when you talk about 
on the edge, we here's how crazy it was. We didn't even know if we had all of Mark Meadows' texts. We had no idea because we couldn't get his call records. So what we got from Meadows was what he actually gave us voluntarily. And I hope people understand that. But within that, you know, when you're talking over 30 congressional representatives that are actively going back and forth about some of the craziest stuff and sending videos from foreign sources, you would think that there would be people looking into this on a level that's pretty deep. But again, you know, I just couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't get traction. And I think it was fear. Because if you go after congressional members in this term, it's only a two-year term. What happens next term? Everybody's worried about, you know, getting caught back in some kind of crossfire politically if you tell the truth. I think that is part of the issue, is that people are worried about retaliation. Oh, gosh, the stories I could tell. And, you know, I try not to go too deep into this, but I do think, um, you know, we have congressional representatives there that are literally insane. They're crazy. If they do believe this stuff, they have no business being in Congress. And I really wanted to go all in to see all of their connections. But, you know, subpoena congressmen, you know, at that point, we did a few, but just very politically charged. And I think people were worried about retaliation in the future. Well, how deep does it go? I mean, you have this international experience. You brought up Mike Flynn, Roger Stone, Roger Stone, a partner of Paul Manafort, what they did in Ukraine. I mean, Putin is loving this chaos in America. We also have Putin with Trump at Helsinki, etc. How deep does it go, Denver Riggleman? Well, we know it goes pretty deep because we know that there were, you know, direct contact with the Oath Keepers and White House staff validated. We know there were White House phone calls between rally planners and others, and we couldn't get those identified. But we had all the phone numbers, all the White House route numbers. We know that people directly connected to Tario, directly connected to Rhodes, to Patrick Byrne, had a direct line to White House cell phones and were calling them. So this is huge, but we'll never know. At this point, um, the data is too old. I beg for resources. We just data is perishable. Data is not forever. People say it is. That's crap. People who know data know you can delete it. You can lose data. It can be almost impossible to get to unless you're brilliant at it, or you know you've already saved it off beforehand or already had access. People can get rid of data who know what they're doing. And right now. I just don't see us being able to recreate exactly what happened on January 6th because we just waited too damn long. Right. But you, we, we see the obvious connections between the Proud Boys and the White House. He told them to stand back, stand by, you know. And, and then he had uh, Fuentes and Ye over for Thanksgiving dinner in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> I understand those connections, but I'm wondering, uh, Vladimir Putin and the connections to international relations, what's going on in Saudi Arabia, what's going on in Ukraine, even the Middle East. How interconnected do you view all of this? I mean, I can make assumptions. I don't want to make too many assumptions. That's okay. because, um, Yeah, um, but I certainly have seen some things. Um, I've seen videos that are posted, whether they are by accident or on purpose. You have to wonder, how did they get access to the videos to send to Meadows? Who sent them those videos? We know Giuliani liked to pal around. If you go back to the Hunter Biden data, liked to pal around with Durkosh and Furtosh. And you're talking about two agents of the Soviet Union that were actually sanctioned by the Trump administration. Um, and people are like poo-pooing that there's not Russian. It's just so mind-boggling how much disinformation and smoke and fog have been pushed into the American people. And they can't even 
They can't even grasp what's going on. They don't have the attention span. They don't have the knowledge. They're too busy living their lives, right? They're too busy going to work. Right. So the, the interconnectivity, foreign disinformation has been so effective. Uh, and the fact is, is that whether it's on purpose or accident, there's certainly a mirroring of some of what Putin wants and people here on social media with big followings that are certainly pushing those messages. And, you know, there's a, if there was anything I'd like to do is to get carte blanche um, <laughs> to go with all the data that I need to go try to find out what all those connections are and validate them. But obviously I'm pretty good at this and I think I'm on to some of these things here with foreign interference, but you know, it's obvious that there's some very happy threat countries like Russia. Uh, they're looking what's going on right now as we have people out there parroting Putin's talking points in the press, far right press or on social media. Sure. Let me just ask you about uh, a data guy and uh, I and the Denver District Court trial and the January 6th committee because Tim Heafy was a tremendous witness for uh, the plaintiffs in this case because he uh, entered the January 6th record and he also refuted Cash Patel, who's a Trump loyalist, who said, yeah, I gave information to the January 6th committee and they suppressed it all. You've heard that rumor that January 6th yeah. committee shit can thing. Well, Cash Patel took the oath in Denver District Court, albeit by Zoom. Maybe he was at Mar-a-Lago, but he swore to tell the truth. And then he said the January 6th committee has shit canned certain things they didn't like. Now, you were part of that for the longest time. Is that true? Liz Cheney says bullshit. It's all right here. Did you hear that lie by Cash Patel? And then as we get off on this guy, who I think lied in Denver District Court, he said that Trump authorized 10,000 National Guard and that it was the fault of Nancy Pelosi. What do you know about those things? And and is it complete uh, bullshit? Well, I think um, if anybody thinks that Cash Patel is a good faith actor, I got, you know, I got a bridge to sell him. <laughs> right, Greg? Oh, yeah, um, well, what do you know yeah. about this guy? Yeah, Cash Patel is, uh, you know, one of my, you know, favorite hobbies. I mean, this is a guy who has really no no reason to be anywhere close to the DOD or national security and really made a play, you know, to get some pretty high levels during the Trump administration. He's dangerous because of his stupidity and his abject loyalty to Donald Trump. And so he's going to say anything to get him on Trump's good side. His job is to parrot Trump's talking points. So that's all he was doing under oath. He doesn't care about lying or truth. He only cares about getting away with things. He's really one of those incredible bad actors who's happy to be a bad actor, as far as I'm concerned. As far as data, January 6th committee report is right there. Um, there is a lot of data in the archives. I think the American public does need to see that he wouldn't even know about. So it's a crazy question because there is more data out there. But it's not what people think. And the fact that anything was purposefully suppressed is wrong because some of that data could be being used for the FBI investigation as far as metadata. So Patel really doesn't know what he's talking about. Not only does he know what he's talking about, he doesn't even have context on the words coming out of his mouth. So that's really what it comes down to. There's no deliberate suppression of data. That's ludicrous. But there is more data, I think, that's going to come out based on what was actually given to the archives and authorities. Yeah, Judge Sarah Wallace found that he was not credible. She also <laughs> well, evaluated your former colleague, Ken Buck, 
I mean, you were in Congress for a term. Did you run into Ken Buck, or do you have any memories? Ken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we played on the congressional baseball team together. Yeah, I knew Ken. Right. I used to play basketball against him in the Lawyers League. What's happened to a guy like that? He said he's going to stand up to Trump, and then he doesn't. Um, because anybody right now who claims to be a Republican or wants a career, the only way they can make money, even if they leave Congress, is to be in the MAGA pipeline and to suck off that teat. So that takes away all morality. It just does. And you knew that with Ken Buck when he flip-flopped, when he wouldn't vote for Jordan, but he would vote for Mike Johnson, who was also an election denier. It's that simple. I mean, it, there is, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather said, when a politician's opening their mouth, they're lying. I'm like, can't be everybody. Well, it's a lot of them. And pretty much any time they open their mouth, they're lying. It's just... What they're looking at a polling and fundraising then or trying to position themselves for some future payday. That's really all it is. And Ken Buck is that too. I'm worried about billionaires like Putin and Elon Musk. You are active on Twitter, now known as X, and you and I communicate. And Allison Gell puts it, well, let's not surrender the battleground. But sometimes I feel like I'm tweeting out some verbiage that's going to be read back to me in a gulag someday. Like, why are we doing this on Musk's medium? You must think this through Denver, and the fact that you're still on there keeps me on there, too. Well, the fact is, is that I get a lot of good data that way, because I'll put out something specifically in language to see what the reactions are, so I can see where we're at as a country. I, I like to collect ideas and people and data. And People don't know sometimes, especially the dumb ones, um, when they respond to me in the way that they are, um, it gives me insight into where the political dynamic is for the far right or even the far left. So I, it's it's interesting. I sort of laugh sometimes. People are like, I can't believe he said that. Look at this. And I'm like, that's what I needed to know. Um, so, But I am getting to a point where it's getting more and more sort of useless um, I can find myself like even I'll just scroll real quick and do something and I'm off like now, like I just, I'm off. Right. Um, and then I go back and I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Right. Another mm-hmm. stupid thing. Or, and I don't know what Elon's doing. I, I'm to a point that I think he must be going insane or deranged because the things he's saying are so dumb and racist. And you're just to a point like, what a goofball. He's just a goofball. And Regardless of his success in business, it doesn't mean he knows what he's doing or he's doing the right thing for the United States. And I think that's something that we really got to look into. But I'm getting to a point with Twitter X that I call it shitbird with an X, X X-H-I-T-B-I-R-D. But I'm just to the point, I'm just like, ha, I'm wasting a lot of my time when I could be spending time building my tech companies or my distilleries and things like that. Well, I really appreciate your time, and it's such a big story. You keep on top of it. But have you heard about Coomer v. Oltman? Eric Coomer, Dr. Eric Coomer, an executive at Dominion, got chased out of Denver, the city named after you, uh, because he got threats to be a Joe Want to hear a crazy story? Yes, please. We went to high school together. You Same and Eric Coomer did? Yes. Wow. At Stonewall Jackson <laughs> High School? Yeah, we went to school together. Yeah, we we just talked uh, a couple weeks ago. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, so, I mean. I met him yeah, in court. Um, He's a nice guy. I, I, I went to cover aspects of his case. Can you imagine case. the conspiracy theories? Can you imagine the conspiracy theories? Me and Eric at the same school. Yes. Um, he worked for Dominion. I'm the guy 
that's trying to go after Trump as a former Republican. I mean, I'm on the J6 committee, you know, uh, saying that the election wasn't stolen. He's saying the same thing in Dominion. Can you imagine conspiracy theories? Yeah, we went to the same school, man. And it all comes out on a podcast hosted by a Jewish guy? I mean, holy yeah, nobody, yeah, It's great. Nobody knows it. Now yes. they do. I don't really. And, and we, I, we're and trying I, to put it out there as a secret message to all well, our followers. Yeah, you probably don't want to lead with that and just let people listen to this and find yes. it in the weeds. You yes. know? Um But yeah, he's a good guy. And uh, enjoy the hell out of him. And uh, yeah, I'm happy for his wins in court right now. I can tell you that. Right. But the guy who uh, put him in the crosshair said he was a data analyst and he, he intercepted an Antifa call. And Next thing oh, you know, bullshit. Donald Trump was tweeting about it. Hey, looking at this guy, yeah, it's, Toomer. Yeah. It's a lie. Just bullshit upon bullshit. I know, it's but it's, it's got no, it's, real world repercussions. And that's where I want to end it. You've been so generous and you're a tough guy, a bouncer, a power lifter. But this, no, I used to be. I'm old now. But this, <laughs> but this retribution promise. I get a kick on mm -hmm. Twitter, you know. All these mag enforcers say, hey, you know what to expect from Donald Trump. He's steady. He'll do it. Well, tell me about this retribution. How's that going to work exactly? Is Denver Riggleman going to get in trouble and if he's in trouble? Oh, I could be subpoenaed and, you know, brought up, but I'm an awful person to subpoena. And they I know, know it. but do you I mean, worry more about guys with guns? I know you're fully loaded out there, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I do worry. I do. I mean, but it's not something that, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, you know, I've been around a while, pretty well-trained guy. There's always going to, there's sometimes people are going to wish to do you harm. You know, you try to be situational aware, hope for a little luck too. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, but this retribution thing, listen to what Donald Trump says. It's almost full circle from the beginning. If they tell you what they are, listen to them, validate what they're doing to get to that point. But when you see him, which he could very possibly win this election in the cabinet that he chooses, if you have the Stephen Millers, the Mike Flynn's, he's picking lawyers that are completely loyal, like the Havas and things like that, instead of, right, the, the like Cipollone and Hirschman, people who are sane. He, he's learned some lessons. It's going to be the craziest administration in the history of the United States. It will be insane. And those people could be coming after people using executive power. So we better get ready. Listen to what he's saying. He wants to be a dictator. He is an awful scumbag, and we have to fight at that level. So listen to what he's saying. You don't have to be too scared or too anxious about it. You know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Cash That's really, yeah. Cash Patel yeah. in charge of the CIA. That's not going to be a good day for you. It would be the collapse of the United States of America. Right. We can't let Full that collapse. happen. And you talk Full about collapse. three or five percent of people are persuadable. What would happen if I said, hey, you know what? I used to be on Denver Trump radio is what I call it now. But these guys, the morning host is a colonel in the military. I don't know how you can denigrate Joe Biden and do that. But he says he's in reserves, whatever. But his background is sort of like yours, you know, uh, uh, and and. If I said, hey, why don't you have Representative Riggleman on? Get a different perspective. Read his book. Would you go on a show like that, or do you say forget it? Oh, well, I've, I have engaged. Um, but, yeah, I'd go on a show like that. They wouldn't like it. 
and they would just come up with bullshit. And that's the issue with conspiracy theorists and bullshit artists that they've wrapped a narrative around things that couldn't possibly be true. And they use it. As I don't think, I don't think this guy is that far gone. It's what I'm saying. You know, it's not, oh, yeah. it's not like Alex Jones. This is more a guy. Yeah, I have no problem. Yeah. I don't right. have any problem. I, yeah, and, I and it's, yeah. Will you go on box if they ask you? Like if oh, Sean, yeah. if Sean Hannity wants you on, would you go on? Sure. I would. And what about yeah. uh, this guy, Tucker Carlson? Would you have anything to do with him? No, because that's like getting um, airborne herpes. <laughs> um, no. You're, no. An, you're an intelligence guy. Is that syphilis on Donald Trump now? And do you think he really smells? <laughs> no, I listen, Adam Kinzinger is a friend of mine. I thought it was hilarious, you know, to attack him personally to see how thin skinned he was, which he reacted exactly how a narcissistic personality and psychopath would. Um, but no, I don't believe those red marks are syphilis at all. I think it was probably magic marker or, you know, something like that. And, uh, and, and if it is, you know, good. <laughs> I think it's a glass ketchup bottle that ricocheted when he threw it against the wall. That's my guess. It, it could be, be anything like that. I, I just, I don't, I don't think it's syphilis. Anyway, you do so many great things. Everybody should buy your book, The Breach. They should listen to your podcast. And don't you think there are some great podcasters like Ben Wyselis, Allison Gill, yourself? I mean, yeah. Glenn Kirshner, Harry Littman. There's a pro-democracy mm -hmm. community, and it's pretty cool to you know, be able to interact with such people. That's the way I feel, and I'm so honored yeah. to interact with you. Thank you, Craig. It was an honor to be on your podcast today. This was a lot of fun. A lot of fun for me. Thanks, Denver. Stay safe. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody. For all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156. 303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years years and i know a lot of people and if i can't do right by you i can steer you in the right direction my number 303-734-7156 ask for craig craig silverman a voice for victims a voice for people with legal difficulties hey troubadour I know you're rushing around, barely time for me. Between lookout renovation and 
What do you got, a gig tonight on a Friday night? Papa Mo and the Vipers were playing uh, in Littleton at a little place called The Alley. It's a fun little place. Oh, my goodness. Your public awaits. And how late do you play? Well, it doesn't matter. We're not coming on until Saturday morning, but... Just give a flavor of what you expect at a gig like this. Well, I, I look forward to the gig. It's, um, it's a little neighborhood bar. It's friendly. The people are great behind the bar and, and uh, Mary who runs it. And, uh, you know, we've only been there once before, but there was uh, a very, a very uh, fun, loving crowd there. Very and you bring your own crowd and groupies. Am well, I right? When you come, we bring our own crowd. No, I'm not a groupie. Sometimes you come. I've seen your regulars. Well, <laughs> you 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 help. Every I have the helps. best darn guest, Denver Riggleman. You know what he did in his youth in a rural Virginia? Tell me. Have you ever heard of Manassas, Virginia? That's yes. where he grew up. Wow, you know how I've heard of Manassas? Please. Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills and Nash had an album called Manassas back in the seventies. Probably in the early. Anyway, it was a great album. Oh, there you yeah, go. A solo album on his effort. Uh, a solo effort. Yeah. So one of his gigs was to be a bar bouncer. So I imagine you all the gigs you played, you've had to rely on some bouncers. We have. Yeah. Any any particulars come to mind? <laughs> I know one does for you. There. Well, there was. Let's see. There was a little altercation in Boston once. But you know, even these days. Like when we played uh, at Lincoln's, they had someone at the door there. They just kind of like to make sure everything's cool, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. a big job. Yeah. And it can be boring until it isn't. Right. Right. Yeah, closing time. Yeah, closing time, sometimes in the middle. And uh, he just kind of keeps You're not an eye playing until 2 a.m. anymore, are you? Oh, no. No, that hurts. Yeah. You had those days, though, huh? Oh, yeah. Holy cow. What time do you end your gigs well, now? I mean, it really depends on the place. Like this is a eight to eleven gig, which is great. You know, beautiful. Pack up home around midnight, and you know, it's great. And the next day, I can actually function. Well, we had one of the great walks. I think it's because we were all cooped up with that polar vortex. But we had one nice day, and my favorite part of walking with you is contemplating the song of the week and. You had it right away when I said Appalachia. The song has an Appalachian feel, yes. Or at least that's what I was going for. And nothing the wind can't blow. It's beautiful. Backup singers and a fiddler. Who's that again? Well, so this is Sarah's. And it's uh, my daughter, my old, uh, older daughter, Sarah. Uh, one of my favorites that she sang with me. She has a beautiful voice and she reminds me of a, of a mountain girl. And, uh, you know, it's a simple voice, not trained, but but beautiful. And um, Johnny Neal is the fiddle player. And I never got to meet your mother. I don't think you got to meet mine either, which is a darn shame because I we both loved our mothers so much. And I don't remember ever having a big fight with my mother. I bet you never had one with yours. No, you? no, no. I remember her tossing in, me into my room a couple times when my dad was traveling. Kind of, you know, one one hand on the... <laughs> right, but isn't it sad? Because Denver, Denver Riggleman, my new friend, if you read his book, and I urge everybody to do so at the breach, he ends up in a big fight with his mother over politics. You know, isn't that terrible? 
Yeah. Yeah. And we were just talking about that, how, you know, these days so many, you know, friendships um, and family have have been um, just disrupted by political because it's it's more than politics. It's what's what's happened with politics. It kind of becomes more of a fundamental personal ideology, or at least that's what people read oh, into I feel it. so lucky to not have those fights within my family. No, no. I mean, the kind of disagreements I had with my mom, I'd sum it up this way. Nothing the wind can't blow. There you go. Right. It can all, it can all be better, right? And quickly. It's just going to blow away because yeah. we love each other. Right. Right. And you, this song is about a mother. And if you read, again, my friend Denver Riggleman's book, he's got a wife named Christine who he met as, a, as an adolescent. And they have this beautiful bond, wow. one of the great love affairs. That's great. Yes. And she's from Appalachia, too. So, so they've let, been together since high school? Is that Yes. Wow. Three daughters, too. That's great. Just like your song. Let's let everybody hear. Nothing the wind can't blow. Dave Gunder, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. All her life making it better Sitting up with her baby child Little girl, tell me what's the matter And I will stay a while Sit right there, I'll tell you the story Where we're from, who you are I'll come from the land of milk and honey Black sky with a million stars Now she's running late Last one in again Putting on her face Raider boss will understand Later now visits her mama on her own And she sees her slowly fading away now In this so-called home She used to have a smile for everyone around Saying to her children Always keep your head up now Trouble coming down to this, down to this, down to this. All our trouble coming down to this. Nothing that the wind can blow. All our trouble coming down to this, down to this, down to this. All our trouble coming down to this. Nothing that the wind can. Lights turn green, she don't go Got her face in her hands crying for her mama And she pray 
ways for others she don't know She is young and faith is strong That's how she was raised With a smile and with a song All our trouble coming down to this Down to this, down to this All our trouble coming down to this Nothing that the wind can't great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. 
My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, what a show. I told you, Dave Gunders, every damn week, he delivers with the conversation and the beautiful song, Nothing the Wind Can't Blow, dedicated to Hooch Mama Christine. Riggleman, Denver Riggleman, thank you, friend. Let's stay in touch. In fact, post-interview, we went back and forth about Manassas, Colorado, just under a 1,000 people. Manassas, Virginia, where he grew up, about 43,000 people. The Manassas Mauler, that's an interesting story. I've told that on podcasts, but right these days, we're trying to save democracy. Having a Denver Riggleman on, I think it's a good thing. We have to talk about it, think about it, convince others with conversation. Thanks for listening to ours. Until next time, tell a friend, subscribe, share, five stars on Apple, and check out our YouTube shorts as well. The Craig Silverman Show, every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Colorado time. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.